0: You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is
1: episode 189 of Healthy Critters Radio on the Horse Radio Network. Healthy Critters Radio is brought to you by Biostar US, and you can find them online at biostarus.com.
2: On today's show, we talk with Lizzie Meyer, Biostar's canine expert, about a recent study in South Korea on the dog microbiome and kidney disease. The critter of the show is the capybara, and in critter nutrition, We focus on building top line on horses. Listen in. Hi, I'm
1: Tigger. Hi, I'm Coach Jen. And that pause is because...
2: (laughs) Because Tigger couldn't remember who she was. (laughs) (laughs) She was having an out-of-body experience.
1: Yes. Yes, we are. And and the the chuckle you hear in the background is our guest, Lizzie, who's going to be coming up shortly. But (laughs) for now, (laughs) this is the point in the show where I get to ask normally Tigger and Patty. But this time it's going to be Tigger. And I suspect Lizzie will chime in some question because invariably Tigger shows up unprepared and it's my benefit and yours. So today's question, what equestrian fashion trend from the past, recent or far, would you like to see come back? And I want specifically human fashion trends for equestrians. Go Tigger.
2: Oh my god! I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Maybe plain black, um, riding boots without patent leather and crystals.
1: <laughs> yeah, that the bling has gotten pretty. Blingy, it's pretty. Bl- bling is pretty blingy. Yes, the bling
3: is blingy. Would you would you like to toss something in, Lizzie? I like the classic look myself, and I agree with y'all on the bling. It's pretty over the top. More traditionalist. Is is there anything
1: specifically that equestrians wear now that has too much bling that you would like to see go back to
3: old hard school? hats?
1: Now, Tigger, helmets. you already went. Give Lizzie a chance well, to talk.
3: This, well, no, I she took the words <laughs> out of my mouth, actually. Um, that is a bit of a pet peeve. I mean, I'm no fashionista, but I agree with that one. The, the, the helmets, I I do appreciate a
1: plain black velvet helmet, especially the ones that are proper lush velvet versus the short stubby Mm-hmm. kind. Yeah.
2: I definitely appreciate that.
3: Looking.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I Yeah. I, I mean, that. I think a little bit of, you know, the subtlety of bling, I like it on the brow bands. If that's the only mm-hmm. bling that's around, I, I think that's a nice touch, but so much bling on the helmet and so much bling on the boots. It's, it's, it, it kind of takes away for me.
1: It's too much. Yeah. 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 Well, I, ha- I have a much more pedantic one. Oh, I can't wait. Much more. I was an eventer back in the day when eventing was still a young, crazy sport. And back in the day, the riders wore a penny that was made of fabric. And uh-huh. then the number was either sewn on and fell uh-huh. uh-huh. or it was put on with an ink transfer. And at the end of the competition, you handed your penny back in and you got a. $25 refund or some such the big obnoxious plastic envelopes that riders in the eventing discipline have to wear. Now I oh. just find oh, it's obnoxious.
2: Awful. It's awful. It's <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: Awful. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yep, I agree Give them a you. cloth penny, please. Yep,
2: <laughs> It moved with them.
1: Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, I, I get why they do it because they don't have to keep track of pennies and have to buy pennies et cetera, et cetera. That is hand you a paper number and you put it inside your own penny, but they're
2: obnoxious. Yes, so, they are
1: going to put that out into the world and we'll uh, move on. If you okay. have, if you have fashion trends that you would like to see come back, hop on over to healthy critters radio on Facebook and post it there. Maybe a before and after picture, or if you've got a really cool picture of you in your real honest to goodness, cloth penny at the Radnor horse trials in 1981, Post it over there. We'd love to see it. There you go. <laughs> and we're going to move straight into our roundtable today because, as I said, we've got Lizzie here with us. What is the roundtable about today? It sounds very deep.
2: It's about the gut microbiome in, in chronic kidney disease in dogs. So to preface preface this, chronic kidney disease is epidemic in dogs. Really? Yeah. Didn't know that. And Lizzie found this study and both she and I are obsessed with the microbiome. And she sent it to me and I read it and went, oh my God. Because if we can it, it if we can support the microbiome in a really positive way, we may be able to keep dogs from getting chronic kidney disease. But so often the kidney is been considered sort of separate from the GI tract. So it's its, its own thing. But this study really showed how interrelated they are. So with that, um, I'm really happy that we have Lizzie Meyer, who is Biostar's canine expert, to uh, talk more about this study and and what it means and what we can learn from it.
3: Well, thanks for the introduction, um, Tigger and Jen. Um, So the title of this study, it's actually published in Frontiers in Veterinary Science, and it's very recent from August 24th of 23, and um, the uh, the title is a pilot study of the alterations of the gut microbiome in canine chronic kidney disease. So it's pretty interesting because statistics do kind of vary, but kidney disease is pretty common, and it's estimated to affect about one in 10 dogs a lot. Um, Yeah. And, and there's a lot to, you know, chronic kidney disease, but we'll just focus on kind of this inner relationship between the gut microbiome and the connection with the kidneys, which I find really interesting as well. Um, So the, the goal of this study was to compare the microbiome, the gut microbiome profiles of a total of 29 dogs. So there were 19 that had some stage of chronic kidney disease, and they had 10 normal healthy dogs. So this was a small pilot study, but it's still incredibly valuable. And they they were trying to characterize the changes that happen with within the microbiome of the kidney disease dogs and comparing it to the healthy dogs. And so it's interesting because this does relate to humans as just a little add-on because with with people, there is a connection between the gut microbiome and the progression of kidney disease. And um, basically, with the chronic kidney disease, this type of kidney disease the gut becomes more permeable. So it becomes more like a sieve instead of a um, seal, more of a sealed tube. And there's excessive production of toxins from bacteria in the microbiome in the gut that injure the kidneys. So just basic knowledge is that you know, with those with chronic kidney disease have increased systemic. So all over the body, immune, inflammatory responses, and they have the intestinal you know, permeability. So this is really not a good setup for health. So under normal conditions um, with the dogs and with the kidneys and the microbiome, they can filter out uremic um, byproducts, So uremic meaning protein breakdown byproducts. And this is, this is normal. So if the kidneys are diseased and deteriorating, those uremic products are retained and that's going to affect the kidney. And what they found with the, the CKD dogs and the gut microbiome changes were that there, there were certain phylum of bacteria that were increased. And so in general, the increase was the protein digesting bacteria and a decrease in the carbohydrate digesting bacteria. And the specific phylum, um, I'm a nerd. I think this is interesting. The proteobacteria was higher in dogs with the kidney disease compared to the healthy dogs. And the cool thing about proteobacteria is that it's a potential marker for leaky gut. Yep. and and that's also called dysbiosis um, which is incredibly common in dogs these days and um, and the proteobacteria is associated with many other chronic inflammatory diseases in humans like IBD, different types of cardiovascular disease, lung disease etc. So when they compared healthy to healthy dogs, the kidney disease, dogs showed a significant increase in another um, type called Enterococcus, and then a decrease in Ruminococcus, and, and this is neat because Ruminococcus are a part of like the biggest phylum of um, like one of those dominant phylums in a dog of bacteria. It's called Firmicutes, and that makes up like eighty five percent of the microbiome that they're te- that they're testing.
2: May uh, I add that yeah. in the Firmicutes group are the Lactobacillus, the Bifidus, some of the strains that you would find in, um, in a probiotic.
3: Yes. Yes. Firmicutes is, is, is a very inclusive group. Definitely. Um, and then there were a probably three others I think worth mentioning um, for right now, but the enterobacteria family was higher in the kidney disease dogs than the healthy ones. And then Clubsiella and Clostridium showed a gradual increase um, as the kidney disease progressed. And both showed a, um, like a proteolytic and a close relationship with you know, whenever there were the uremic toxins. So they'd find the club cell and the, clostri- the clostridium when those toxins were present. So that was very interesting. And then I think the most interesting kind of detail to me that says a lot about this connection was this um one type called coloncella intestinalis. And That one relates to the gut dysbiosis, like the leaky gut and the kidney disease very directly. And basically there were, um, they kind of, there was information from a mouse study cited in this study. And it was regarding the progression of the kidney disease and the colon sala and what the influence was. And this specific strain induced like a loosening of the tight junctions. And so that, I mean, the tight junctions are what make that gut, um, um, basically functional and it, it keeps the integrity of that lining, which is what you want. You do not want a leaky gut. And then the colon cell, it also affected the, the proteins that yeah. basically, um, keep inflammation down in that cell lining of the gut. And so without that, it becomes like a loose junction and your intestinal barrier disintegrates over time. So with that, you get this like low grade chronic kind of inflammation and this whole cascade that I cannot possibly go into. But the bacterial products that would normally stay contained in this gut tube are now in circulation systemically. So you can imagine the degree of inflammation that is now kind of all over the system that the immune system now has to work on so um I think the biggest uh, takeaway that I got was the results that suggest that the gut derived uremic toxins may contribute to the development and the progression of the kidney disease because they're they're, they're synthesizing all these like uremic toxins that are related to the deterioration of the kidneys. (laughs) So it's, it's a very um, interesting relationship. And yes, they need to do further studies because this was a small study, but I think they have some really good data. And I, and I also was kind of imagining how this would relate to, you know, further kind of therapies for kidney disease and in yep. the study they were they had some good ideas and they're kind of saying that it, it was possible that CKD could be helped by supporting specific gut microbiota in the future as a part of management of the disease and that's just that's sort of something that they're looking into um and then in, in humans carb digesting bacteria protect against the inflammation associated with ckd and it help that actually helps to prevent progression of the disease because kidney disease can be pretty slow and if it's you know early i mean there are stages one through four four being like 15 percent of the kidney is even working um so they're really sick at stage four i mean they're they're there's a lot going on, but um, hopefully, there there could be a lot to be done with with the um, gut microbiome earlier on. And um, the last thing I've, you know, that I think is interesting is that certain bacterial families, like the ACA you know, they were they were increased in the kidney disease, and. You know, I think with, you know, all these ones that were increased in the kidney dogs and then finding what other species would be complementary and supportive to the gut biome and what influence that would have on the kidneys would be pretty interesting, too. So
2: I I wanted to point out something that stood out to me in the study, and that was the decreased abundance of ruminococcus. And yes, Ruminococcus is part of the phylum Firmicutes that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. But what I what I find this fascinating is Ruminococcus are responsible for producing short chain fatty acids. Yes. Now we talk a lot about short chain fatty acids as they relate to horses, as in butyrate for one, in the hind mm-hmm. gut. But they're also very important to dogs. And the study uh, suggested that um, because the the significant decline in butyrate-producing bacteria species in dogs with chronic kidney disease, because of that, with chronic kidney disease, that short-chain fatty acids could be considered as a therapeutic target to slow the progression of chronic kidney disease in dogs. Well, that's huge. Yes,
3: that is huge. That is
2: huge. So how would we, how could we encourage uh, short-chain fatty acids in dogs? How could we support that?
3: Well, those, aren't those coming from the bacteria, so the bacteria that break down starch, those saccharolytic bacteria.
2: Yeah,
3: right. So, yep. um, I am a fan. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't design diets, but when you're feeding a fresh food diet, a high moisture fresh food diet to a dog who's got some kidney stress, you know, you're you're using uh, higher fiber can be helpful. Yep. And sometimes you're decreasing a little bit of the protein early on. That's a whole can of worms I'm not going to get into. But giving them a little bit of something that uh, might be just a little bit of sweet like cooked sweet potato or cooked butternut squash or um I mean a, a little bit of like organic oatmeal or organic barley just a little bit because you've got you've got to feed you've got to feed the bacteria that are going to end up making the butyrate, right? Yeah. Those are just my thoughts on that. Um,
2: Another great source is, are the medicinal mushrooms?
3: Definitely a good point. Yeah. Which, which one specifically would you go for, for this?
2: I would probably go with turkey tail. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh
3: that's a good maybe, one. Maybe
2: shaga. Um but I mean you could use rishi. I mean they they've all basically metaki.
3: Yeah.
2: Um you know, they've got the the the, the beta glucan, and that is gonna support short chain fatty acid production. So definitely um, and you know fermented foods. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do kefir.
3: Oh, good point. Yes, yeah. yeah.
2: You could do lassi. Mm-hmm. Um, if you good. don't know what lassi is, uh, lassi is uh, an Ayurvedic. How would you describe it?
3: Well, it's it's like diluted.
2: Yeah, diluted.
3: Yeah, so Blend it. There's a lot of ways to make lassi but it's it you know can be cooling depending on you, know, you can put different spices in it that are really mild that you know dogs are fine with um but to me it's very nourishing and it's moisturizing and it's cooling and you don't need a lot of it no um and you know there's just there's on on the fiber side just as an easy thing but the you know fiber decreases like the nitrogen waste products. Yeah. Break down from just digesting protein in anybody. Um the the good bacteria themselves, like we're talking about, those are gonna make these short chain fatty acids. Yep. And so it's really important to have good prebiotic support in the form of like the mushrooms, so the high beta glucan Content and other types of fiber, um, in addition to some probiotic support that ideally would be rotated so you have variety. Um, but I think and that's
2: really important. And I think yes. with a lot of chronic conditions, um, we kind of throw variety out the window we and do. try to stay in a very narrow corridor. Um, because we we think that that, you know, keeps things at bay. Don't make too many changes, don't. And you only get an increased population when you have different foods. If you're feeding the same thing day in, day out, the the, the colonies are very stable, but you don't have much diversity. In fact, you lose diversity. Right,
3: right. And diversity is really the name of the game. It is. Um, especially when there's something going on that you're, you know, that's sort of in management mode. Um and I think there's also a fear component. People are afraid to change, you know, they don't they don't want to, and I mean this with no judgment, but have having been in this boat myself with animals, but When things look like they're working well, it is sometimes difficult to say, I think I'm going to add some variety because some people believe that you're rocking the boat or there's a chance of that. But I I believe that looking at the vitality of the animal is really what's going to tell you if you're on the right track, regardless of the label or the diagnosis. So doing what you can to maintain that vital force and maintaining digestion, because the gut is the seat of health. This is the most important area to support, regardless of what's going on in the whole animal. So the right fibers, the right amount, which is going to be individual for every single dog requires trial and error. Yep. The right pre and probiotics. And again, trial and error. and then having having a few that you can, um, you know, you might have some that are soil-based and some that are not. You might have some that are, um, you know, they're just, they're coming from a variety of different sources um, with different prebiotics to, you know, support growth of those particular strains.
2: I, um I want to to sort of theorize, in order to um, possibly prevent chronic kidney disease, what do you think should be the goal of dog owners and our approach to feeding?
3: This could take a while. I think there's a there's a Oof. certain herbicide that is very very uh unhealthy for kidneys called glyphosate and that that is something important um to consider as a possible um you know factor and also moisture in the diet that's something that yeah. As someone who feeds kibble, they can they can do that part. They can add raw goat's milk, they can add bone broth, they could do homemade bone broth. I mean, it's really inexpensive. Um there's there's a lot you can do for hydration because dogs really do really do need good hydration for good mm-hmm. digestion, first of all, but also when they're eating like an exclusively dry diet, they're having to pull water and other, you know, hydration from the rest of their body just to break down their food. So I would rather they, you know, have something that's high moisture, like 70% ish, and have good hydration, because hydration is How the body, it's one of the easiest things we can provide, but it's such a foundation of how the body is going to detox. The body has amazing capabilities of detoxing itself under normal circumstances, which this world current, this is not normal circumstance. Herbicides are not normal circumstance. Chemicals in the water, all that stuff, that's not normal. But for the dog to, to have the best chance, good hydration is absolutely critical. Yeah. So whatever, whatever people can do on that level is very important. Um, and, and then I think that the last big thing I would look at was just considering, and I don't want to say decreasing, but because this is all very individual decision, um, really consider what are the toxins going into or onto a dog regularly. And just consider, is this something you need or you don't really need or is there an alternative? And like I said, that is a 100% individual um, process to figure out. But it is something to consider because the kidneys are detoxing so much, as is the liver. So whatever we can do to support them, I am all for And I know that's within reason for everyone's situation and living environment, et cetera. Um, So those are some big,
2: big pieces. I I like how you, you put that because if we, if we frame it as let's not have the kidneys and our dogs have to work so hard, what can we do so that the kidneys don't have to work so hard?
3: Well, yeah, thank you. The, the other like easy piece is paying attention to the seasons like winter in Chinese medicine is kidney season. So doing what you can like if you're going to do some kidney herbs, just gentle kidney tonic herbs, um, or like a good kidney combination of herbs, something like that. If you're going to do that for a healthy, you know, adult or senior dog, maybe doing that and like going into the winter and throughout the winter would be a good time of year to do it for, you know, a couple months or so. If the dog just, you know, it's healthy, but you're just being proactive um, because the energy is focused on the kidneys and all yep. the that time of year. So um I'm all for seasonal use of, you know, herbs and supplements. And, you know, the other easy thing is, again, it's more, kind of TCM, but some other schools have thought too, but like, like, like feeds like, so if you can find a source, you know, even if this is a kibble fed dog, you know, what, whatever you're doing for your foundation food, this, this would still apply. If you can find a clean source of kidneys, like dehydrated or freeze dried kidneys, and you just feed a small amount. Yeah. That that can be very helpful. And then you're getting the benefits of that particular organ meat as well, which dogs do need that variety. But you're feeding a very, very small amount of something that will support according to that school of thought, the kidneys themselves. So I like that um, as a proactive thing to do.
2: For an herbal uh, kidney formula.
3: Yes. Um, The one that I've had personal experience with is Dr. Harvey's kidney health. Um, I have had senior dogs over the years with kidney enzymes that were elevated for different reasons. And by the time kidney enzymes are elevated, there's been something going on for a while, assuming it's in the the chronic low-grade kidney issue category, not in all cases. But the Dr. Harvey's is a great blend. I have never had a dog say no to it palatability wise. It smells good. It's very well balanced. I like it. Um, just, you know, feed during the winter. Um, I believe animal essentials has a liquid, like a glycerite. So it, it's sweet. It, it tastes good. Um, and they have a, they have a really nice kidney formula as well. And if you wanted to go super simple, dandelion. Leaf. Um, Yeah. Sometimes recommended. So, and you can cook, you can, you know, some like health food stores do sell dandelion leaf and you can just steam it, steam it, or you can blend it raw with some, um, you know, bone broth. And the dogs love it. So that's an easy, easy thing to do. Um, And also, I mean, filter your water. Really simple, you know, water filters can be helpful. Um, so, the cleaner the water, the healthier the
2: kidneys, in my opinion. So, well, thanks, Lizzie. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I, this study was so. So exciting to me making that connection that we already know is in Eastern medicine. E- Eastern medicine already figured out that connection, but yeah. to have the Western research, actual study show this relationship between the microbiome and the kidney is just fantastic. And it's going to help a lot of dogs. This is, this is just the beginning. It's
3: just a pilot study. It's great. Yeah. It's very well done. And you know that. Um, we'll we'll put the direct link somewhere where people can read it with the fine tooth. Comb. It's
2: in the show notes.
3: Great. I just went over it the best the best I could synthesize, but it there's a lot to it. It's very interesting to read. Yes. And I think more will be done on this topic. For sure. Glad that they did this. Heddy.
2: Hello. Heddy. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 It's your healthy critters fan club.
1: Hello, fans. <laughs> Hello, friends. Hey, Hedwig. We have an important question for you. Okay. We chit chat a little earlier this evening about fashion trends in the equestrian, equestrian world that we thought that we would like to see coming back. So I had a question for you about doggy hair fashions particularly this time of year you see some pretty crazy hairdos on dogs on social media where do you stand on crazy hairdos on dogs are they a good idea are they a bad idea
4: are they sometimes bad what do you think I mean sometimes when I wake up from my naps I look a little wild (laughs) (laughs) you know because my fur is all tufty in different directions do you get bedhead Yes, because I like to sleep upside down. You sleep, that's
1: interesting. You're an upside down sleeper.
4: I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I wake up and my head is all flat, but my ears are all tufty. Ears are tufty. I see.
1: Do you, do you appreciate getting a a nice fluffy hairdo or would you really rather not have to put up with that? If anyone touches me, I will bite their face off. (laughs) Oh, I see. So how do you keep, how do you keep your coat so gorgeous and, and beautiful
4: under extreme duress I am forced to undergo things that were basically practiced at Abu Ghraib and I am (laughs) genuinely held down and brushed.
1: now if you got your hair clipped off and you basically got a a doggy a, a doggy crew cut you wouldn't have to get brushed so often would that be suitable
4: no, because that is not what we do with Pomeranians. We have a double coat, and it is important that we have our undercoat properly groomed out so that we don't get infections and mats. And and yet you hate having it done. Like you would not believe, correct? <laughs> so you You are the
1: very definition of contradiction, Hedwig.
4: Well, here is how I like to understand it, if I may explain. I have the most perfect suit in the history of the world ever. It is designed for temperature control. It protects me from bugs. I am always extremely beautiful. Managing my coat is not my job. That is the job of the staff. The staff are well paid. This is their problem. What are they here for? Make me look absolutely perfect and put up with my complaining. <laughs> There we go. What what about
1: the crazy curly hairdos with, with dyed hair that makes dogs look like lions and zebras and things like that? How do you feel about that? I think that's just silly. <laughs> that's
4: silly. I mean, even an especially ugly dog does not need to be made to look like a zebra. <laughs> like my goblin brother, we don't try to make him look differently. We just accept that he's ugly.
2: <laughs> How about traveling in like a designer bag oh thank you but no I don't
4: um approve of being carried about in bags I have paws they're extremely good looking people try to touch them so there's no need for me to have a bag and be carried around I can walk on my beautiful paws
2: okay but you know you would make a nice fashion accessory just saying
4: Well, of course, I would make you look better, but that is not my purpose. I wouldn't make everyone look better. That is not really the point, though. I am (laughs) not here to make you look better. You are here to improve the quality of my life.
1: There we go. Well, Hedwig, thank you for helping us to improve the quality of this podcast. And we'll see you next time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. So now we're at our critter of the show, and I have chosen the capybara. Now, Jennifer's going to ask, why did I choose the capybara?
1: Yes, I am. Why did you choose the capybara?
2: Because when my youngest brother was little, uh, a very famous children's author named Bill Pete wrote a book called Cappy Boppy about the capybara that he and his family raised. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. (laughs) Even though I wasn't reading children's books at the time, I love the idea of a giant rodent. They're like between three and a half and four feet tall. I mean, they're like having a big dog. They're related to the guinea pig, another wonderful reason (laughs) that I like capybaras. Anyway, they're very gentle souls. Um, they're closely related to guinea pigs. Um, sometimes they're actually referred to as the water pig. Africa has hippos and South America has capybaras. They're found east of the Andes in Central and South America riverbanks and ponds and marshes. Um, Their feet are webbed, so they're really good swimmers. They eat water plants and grasses and actually can go underwater for like five minutes to escape a predator, um, which is pretty cool. Um, They do have some things in common with hippos. Their eyes and ears and nostrils are all found near the top of the head. And they can lift just those parts out of the water to learn everything they need to know about what's going on around them. And the rest of their body stays underwater. That's kind of cool.
1: That's interesting. So they're related to guinea pigs. Yes. But
2: guinea pigs are not.
1: But (laughs) but guinea pigs aren't. They don't do the water thing.
2: They don't do the aquatic part. They
1: don't do the aquatic thing. I've seen pictures of capybaras, and they do look like a giant guinea pig. Yes, they do. Without the exotic colors. Because they just come in brown, right?
2: Yeah, it would be nice. You know, that would be a nice thing. We could have a pinto capybara and... You know, maybe a black capybara with white paws. (laughs) I
1: think that's going to be the next designer pet.
2: (laughs) Well, because they're rodents, they do share some common features with mice and squirrels and porcupines. And that's their front teeth. Capybaras use their long, sharp teeth for grazing on grass and water plants. Now, get this. An adult capy can eat six to eight pounds of grass per day. Wow! When you look at, I mean, a horse can eat 20 pounds, but a horse is 10 times the size. So that's a lot.
1: Yeah. Wow.
2: They also like grains, melons, and squashes. Now, they do have an unusual um, habit of in the morning, it's only in the morning, they eat their own poop.
1: Only in the morning?
2: Yes. (laughs) to get the beneficial bacteria that their stomach has broken down overnight.
1: Now, is that something that guinea pigs also do? There's some yeah. other tiny rodent that does that.
2: I have never had a guinea pig. I always wanted a guinea pig, but so I can't I don't know the answer to that. There's some other
1: teeny tiny rodent that does oh, that. Oh, that's I interesting.
2: I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So, they also um have some ruminant Characteristics. They will regurgitate their food to chew it more, and and in some ways they're like a camel because they chew their their food from side to side rather than up and down. Huh. They live in small groups um, of about ten individuals, but they have like capybara uh, gatherings, and that could be up to forty capybaras. Um, like during the wet season, can you imagine? <laughs> I think I would love that. Um, and evidently, one of the the reasons for this is not only that it's great to get together and party, but um, it's helpful to have so many eyes watching out for the youngsters. Um, the baby capybaras are uh, very easily preyed upon by caimans ocelots, Harpy eagles and anacondas. The adults, anacondas
1: specifically, yeah. just that snake, not other snakes. And <laughs>
2: Ev- evidently, adult capybaras have one natural predator. It's the jaguar. Really? Huh. Yeah. Um, the good news is is that uh, the capybara is not endangered uh there are some um capybara farms now in south america that are raising capybaras uh the, the new pet um mm. they used to be eaten for food by humans so it's um these farms are a way to provide food without hurting the the wild population um so I love capybaras. I would love to have one as a pet. I don't think that's going to happen, but uh I wanted to share with you all the amazing the things that make capybaras amazing. And they're very gentle. They're e- evidently they're easy to make as pets cuz they're kind of laid back and and not vicious or aggressive. So um <laughs> if you if you want to know about a person's experience with a with a capybara, get Bill Pete's book, "Happy Bobby." It's, it's, it's
0: great.
1: Huh, well, there you go, capybara. <laughs> ow, ow.
0: Real horses and real dogs are healthier, perform better, and recover more quickly on real food. That's why BioStar empowers horse and canine owners with 100% whole food nutrition, supplements, and feeding programs. Visit BiostarUS.com today and learn about whole foods and canine and equine nutrition so you can make the best decisions about the care and health of your horses and dogs. That's BiostarUS.com. Whole food nutrition, the way nature intended.
2: And now we're at uh, Critter Nutrition, and the topic is building and maintaining top line. For horses. One of the most common issues with our horses is that of the top line. The muscles over the top of the neck, back, and hindquarters are to our eyes what reflect athleticism and a healthy appearance. One of the factors we cannot control is genetics. Some horses are born with strong back, neck, and hindquarter muscles, can live in a field and have a good top line while others can be fed pounds of feed and added supplements and still not have the top line the owner or trainer desires. The process of building muscles includes the process of muscle breakdown. Stand ringside at any CDI or CSIO, and you will see top dressage and jumpers who don't have wow factor top lines because it can be much more challenging to add top line to a very fit horse than one that is not so fit. Topline can be developed with specific nutrition, that is, protein providing the essential amino acids and the branch chain amino acids, antioxidants such as vitamin E, minerals such as selenium, and combined with exercise, hill work, and training that focuses on the correct use of back, neck, and hindquarters. Top line can also be affected by ill-fitting saddles, weight loss, poor shoeing, EPM, EPSM, PSSM, Cushing's disease, and Lyme's disease. Older horses can lose their top lines as part of the aging process. The protein connection. Protein is made up of chains of amino acids, which are absorbed from the small intestine. 20 different amino acids are needed for protein synthesis. However, 10 of these amino acids, known as essential amino acids, must be supplied to the horse through the diet. These amino acids come from quality protein sources like alfalfa, whey, hemp, peas, and eggs that provide all the essential amino acids, including lysine, and the branch chain. Feeds that are over-processed can reduce the biological value of the protein and may not be well absorbed by the horse. It's important to note that some feeds and supplements contain soy as a quality protein source. There are issues to be aware of when using soy as a source of protein for horses the soy phytoestrogens can disrupt endocrine function. Almost all the soy used for horses and livestock is genetically modified to withstand being sprayed with glyphosate. According to Monsanto's own research on Roundup-ready soybeans, they contain 29% less choline. Choline is the B vitamin that supports the brain and 27% more of the trypsin inhibitor than conventional soybean. Trypsin inhibitor can interfere with protein digestion. Studies have also shown that levels of lectins, which are culprits in soy allergies, are nearly double in Roundup-ready soybeans. One of the leading scientists in plant pathology, Dr. Don Huber, has identified a new pathogen from Roundup exposure that has increased infertility in livestock. So let's look at whey protein. Whey protein from cow's milk comes in various forms, isolate, concentrate, and hydrolyzed. One of the most biological forms of whey protein is undenatured whey protein. This means the whey has undergone minimal processing, single flash pasteurization, that does not require high heat. This method ensures that the active peptides, immunoglobulins, and serum albumin are intact, as they would be in raw milk. Undenatured whey protein has twice the amounts of the individual branch chain amino acids as as highly processed whey protein does. If you are feeding your horse a supplement with whey protein. You may want to check to see if the whey comes from cows that are grass fed, RBGH free, and antibiotic free. Hemp, egg, and pea protein. These three protein sources provide the essential amino acids, including lysine and the branch chain. Like other whole food protein sources, such as alfalfa, they also provide other nutritional components. Hemp provides Edison and albumin proteins as well as fiber and key minerals. Egg protein is high in sulfur-containing amino acids such as methionine, which play a critical role in cell metabolism and protein synthesis. P-protein is a rich source of arginine, the amino acid that stimulates nitric oxide and is the precursor of creatine to help the maintenance of ATP for more muscle power. The importance of vitamin E. Vitamin E, being a powerful antioxidant, provides protective benefit to muscles because it helps recovery from oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is going to happen in the breakdown phase of muscle building. So during a workout, the muscles start breaking down and vitamin E helps reduce the oxidative stress. Selenium is important for its role in maintaining muscle health through its antioxidant activity. Trends in bodybuilding and high-performance athletes on the human side are focused on using a variety of protein sources, including whey, eggs, peas, and hemp, because these different proteins are digested at different rates in the body. For instance, whey protein is a fast-digesting protein source, while hemp and alfalfa are a slower-digesting protein due to the fiber content. And ideally, you would want a a blend if you want to build top line of the the fast-digesting proteins and the slower-digesting protein. Building and maintaining top line takes time. Consider using a variety of protein sources. Pull blood on your horse at least once a year to check selenium and vitamin E levels. Make sure there is a variety of work in your training. Cavaletti, heel work, transitions, walking on different surfaces, hard, soft, and grass will help muscles as well as ligaments and tendons.
1: Never thought about the, digest- the, the speed of digestion thing. That's interesting. Isn't that? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's what the bodybuilders and the human athletes, that's what we've learned from them is that why they take so many different protein sources. Yeah. So alfalfa slow and way is fast.
1: I, I don't know that I've ever, I don't recall ever feeding any supplements that had whey in them. And I usually read the ingredients. Interesting. Um, is, it, it is, is it common?
2: I'd say it's fairly common. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. I always associate that with a carnivore's supplement versus a horse's supplement.
2: No, you know, it's interesting. Back in the 1800s, they used to feed eggs and milk.
1: That's
0: true. Horses. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to our sponsor, Biostar US. You can find them online at biostarus.com. For details about today's show, go to healthycrittersradio.com, where you can find links, photos, and more information about our guests. As
2: always, we love your feedback. Please follow us on Facebook under Healthy Critters Radio.
0: Be sure to visit all the great shows on Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. Thank you.